Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. As Joseph left Nauvoo that second time, there's emotional interactions. He bids his family goodbye twice. He's reported to have said to Emma, Emma, teach the children to remember their father. Bid them to keep the commandments. Don't forget me, in other words, is what he was saying. As he left Nauvoo that second time, he rides out past the farm. And as he passes his farm up on the hill, there are three young men working for him who come over to the fence. Joseph stops, dismounts, walks over, and shakes hands with these young men. Their names were John Lott, John Murdoch, and all I have is an initial, a B. Rogers, these three boys. And he turns to Captain Dunn and he says, these are my boys. I like them and they like me. And then Joseph mounts up and rides the rest of the way to Carthage, as I said, arriving about 11.55 p.m. According to the reports, some 1,400 members of the militia are there waiting, and they riot when they see Joseph and Hiram riding into town, crying out, Old Joe, we got you now. The governor quiets the mob by promising that he will parade the prisoners before them the next day and the mob settles down. Tuesday, June 25th, 1844. The mob, or the troops, whatever you want to call them, assemble around the jail at 8.30 the following morning. The governor comes out and speaks to them. And then at 9.15, he brings out Joseph and Hiram and the others, and they pass through the troops, just as the governor had promised. Again, the militia riot, and it takes 15 minutes to quiet the troops back down. Now, Joseph isn't in Carthage jail yet. He's staying, I believe, as I recall, at the Hamilton House. I could be wrong on that one, the hotel. Several officers and soldiers visit him that afternoon, and Joseph looked at them, and he said, quote, I don't look like such a bad individual, do I? And they said, no, but we cannot see into your heart. And Joseph said, I know you can't see into my heart, but I can see into yours. And what you want is blood. And I prophesy to you in the name of the Lord that before your lives are over, you will see all the blood you ever wanted to see, enough to satisfy every one of you. End of quote. This is very important. Around four o'clock that afternoon, Joseph and the other 18 defendants are brought before Judge Robert F. Smith, who's also a member of the Carthage Grays, the militia, on the charge of riot for destroying the press. The judge sets the bail at approximately $500 per prisoner. That's an extreme amount. The law at the time, the precedents at the time, set the bail at half that. Nonetheless, John Fulmer and others 
raised that money and posted $7,500 in bail. Now, all the defendants are free to go. All of the city council, Joseph, Hiram, everyone's free to go. And I understand most of them leave town. Joseph and Hiram stop off at the Hamilton house to have dinner. Now, they're let go on bail. Their trial will be held at a future time. Joseph and Hiram are having dinner when the amidimus, an order, comes remanding them to prison on the charge of treason. Now, again, those of you who understand your 19th century politics, the Constitution of the United States forbids the charge of treason against a state. But again, much of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights has not yet been nationalized. It's not been taken over by the federal government. Therefore, we have this issue. If you keep losing sound, go out of the feed and come back in. Mary, maybe that'll help. I don't know. We've never quite figured out why that happens. Anyway, Joseph is charged with treason against the state of Illinois. And treason is a non-bailable offense. He is escorted to jail. Again, right through the mob. Stephen Markham walks on one side of Joseph, Dan Jones with a walking stick, and Stephen Markham with a club. And together the two of them parry off the weapons, the knives, whatever else is thrust toward Joseph and Hiram as they make their way to the jail. That night by 11.30, prayers are offered and the prisoners try to go to sleep. We now come to Wednesday, June 26, 1844. At 9.30 that morning, Governor Ford comes to meet with the prisoners in the jail. They discuss the expositor incident and Joseph gives this classic response. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you're a friend of the prophet Joseph Smith or an enemy, but listen to the man's words. Joseph said, quote, if it is deemed that we did wrong in destroying that press, we refuse not to pay for it. We are desirous to fulfill the law in every particular and are responsible for our acts. A coward would not say that. A lot happens in that interview, but nothing is greatly resolved. At four o'clock that afternoon, Joseph and Hiram are brought before Justice of the Peace, Robert F. Smith, on the treason charge, and the hearing is postponed until Saturday. They are taken back to the jail. At nine o'clock that night, John Taylor offered prayer, and they spoke on the Book of Mormon. Dan Jones, who was in the jail, the man from Wales, and the sea captain, Dan Jones said, following their discussion on the Book of Mormon and other doctrinal truths, he said he came to realize that a prison could be a temple. He felt a great spiritual outpouring at what happened in Carthage jail that night. Somewhere in that night, there's a shot fired. Joseph climbs out of bed, gets down on the floor, and lies on the floor between Dan Jones and Stephen Markham, spreads out his arms with Jones on one arm and Markham on the other, using it as a pillow. He has a brief conversation with Dan Jones, something to the effect, are you afraid to die, Joseph asked. Jones says, has it come to that, think you? And the prophet Joseph prophesies, you will yet see Wales and perform a great work. As Truman Madsen said it, Dan Jones would, after great effort, return to his native Wales and would baptize thousands, fulfilling that prophecy. 
About midnight, a shot is fired outside the jail, very close, and a mob supposedly starts up the stairs toward the jail. The prophet arises and calls out with the prophet's voice, quote, Come on, ye assassins, we're ready for you, and would as willingly die now as at daylight. End of quote. Thursday, June 27, 1844. Joseph sends Dan Jones out of the jail that morning to inquire about the gunshot. Dan Jones again hears threats against the prophet's life, to which they've said, one person said to Jones, we had too much trouble getting old Joe into jail. Before sunset, not one person will be alive in that jail, and if you want to leave, I suggest you go. Dan Jones was not a prisoner. Willard Richards was not a prisoner. John Taylor was not a prisoner. They were permitted to stay close to the prophet and to Hiram. At 8.30 that morning, Joseph wrote a letter to his wife, Emma, who said, quote, I am very much resigned to my lot, knowing I am justified, and have done the best that could be done. Give my love to the children and all my friends. May God bless you all. Then the prisoners learned that at 10.30 that morning, Governor Thomas Ford left Carthage, bound for Nauvoo, taking with him Captain Dunn and his militia, leaving behind the Carthage graves to guard Joseph. The graves were Joseph's most inveterate enemies. They're the ones who'd been threatening to kill him. If the governor had done anything more to set Joseph and Hiram up to be killed, heaven knows what it would have been. John Taylor said the report of the governor having gone to Nauvoo without taking the prisoners along with him caused very unpleasant feelings as we were apprised that we were left to the tender mercies of the Carthage Grays, a company strictly mobocratic and whom we knew to be our most deadly enemies. End of quote. Around noon, around 1.15, the prisoners were invited to dine with the jailer. Joseph and Hiram dined upstairs in the bedroom. They don't eat very much. Something in the meal doesn't sit well with Willard, and by 1.30, Willard is not well. So he asks Stephen Markham to go out of the cell and get some medicine to help him, to obtain medicine for him. Stephen Markham leaves the jail to go get the medicine. But when he returns to the jail, and I've read this in Stephen Markham's letter, he returned to the jail, and the Grays said, you're not going in. And Markham said, yes, I am going in. No, you're not. They force him back and force him up onto his horse. Still, Stephen would not leave the prophet's side. Determined to ride through them and get to the jail, the Grays stabbed his legs with their bayonets until Markham said his boots were full of his own blood. They drove him away. The mood in the jail as the afternoon drew on was hot, sultry, and depressed. John Taylor said, quote, we, all of us, felt unusually dull and languid with a remarkable depression of spirits. Around 3.15, John Taylor was requested by Hiram to sing a new song that was becoming popular in Nauvoo. It was titled, The Stranger. Today, we know that song as a poor wayfaring man of grief. The title was different then, and the tune was different then. 
Jeff Walker has done considerable research and performed it. The tune and the title were different, but John Taylor said of that, quote, the song is pathetic and the tune quite plaintive and was very much in accordance with our feelings at the time, for our spirits were all depressed, dull and gloomy and surcharged with indefinite, ominous forebodings. After a lapse of some time, Brother Hiram requested me again to sing that song, and I replied, Brother Hiram, I do not feel like singing, when he remarked, oh, never mind, commence singing and you'll get the spirit of it. At his request, I did so. He sings it again. Around 4.15, Joseph talks to the guards, requesting them to be vigilant and guard them well. The jailer invites them to go up and get in the jail cell. And Joseph says, as soon as we have dinner, we'll be happy to go. At five o'clock p.m., John Taylor is sitting in the south window of the jail. He saw a number of men with painted faces from the 200 to 250 men making their way towards the jail. They would not have been walking stealthy. They would have been a mob on a rush. The same moment, a Carthage housewife is shaking the rug. She saw the men as well. William Hamilton was in the tower of the Hamilton Hotel. He looks out and sees the men with painted faces coming. Everyone knows that something terrible is going to happen. Joseph and Hiram and the other prisoners, John Taylor and Willard Richards, are at the top of the stairs in the bedroom, in the debtor's room up there. Willard says, as the mob stormed towards the jail, the Carthage Greys leveled their weapons and fired, and according to their own testimony, they were loaded blank. No one fell. The mob hit the south door, broke it open, and stormed up the stairs. You can't picture all 250 men gathered around the door. No, because they come up the stairs and turn on a tiny little landing that might hold two or three men. It's not very big right there. But Willard said a shower of musket balls was thrown up the stairway of the prison cell. So at the top of the stairs is the prison cell and the debtor's bedroom, or whatever you want, a jailer's bedroom. The prisoners were in the bedroom. The door would not latch. The latch was sprung. And when the mob started up the door, the prisoners locked down and braced against the door. One of the mobbers leveled his weapon and shot through the door. If you've been to Carthage, that hole in the door is still there. That bullet struck Hiram just on the left side of the nose, traveling down and knocking out two of his teeth. Hiram was blown backwards and fell on the floor right in the line of fire. He is shot in the back and in the leg. I think he is shot five times in total. As Hiram fell back, he exclaimed, I am a dead man. One of the balls that struck him in the back traveled through his body and hit his pocket watch and stopped it. There were two watches, John Taylor's and Hiram's. Brother Joseph, Brother Joseph, as he drew nigh to Hiram and leaning over him exclaimed, Oh, my poor dear Brother Hiram. Joseph then rose to his feet, pulled out the six-shooter that had been smuggled into him, opened the door slightly and snapped the pistol, it was a six-shot pistol, six times. Three of the barrels discharged. It is reported that one was wounded, but 
no one was killed. The firing of Brother Joseph made our assailants pause for a moment, John Taylor said. Then John Taylor and Willa Richards take up position behind the door. And the mob now is trying to force the door open. Now, mind you, there can't be many men outside, but there's enough and enough weapons outside that door. And there's John and Willard trying to hold the door shut and knock the weapons down. John Taylor said, it was a terrible scene. Streams of fire as thick as my arm passed by me as these men fired. And unarmed as we were, it appeared like certain death. I remember feeling as though my time had come. While I was thus engaged in parrying the guns, Brother Joseph said, that's right, Brother Taylor, parry them off as well as you can. These were the last words I ever heard him speak on earth. At that point, Brother Taylor realized that there was no safety in that room. If he stayed there, he was going to die. John Taylor sprang for the window across the room. As he leaped to the window, the door, one of the mob, shot him from the door on the back of the thigh. The ball struck the bone and flattened out to about the size, he said, of a quarter dollar. But when it hit the bone of his leg, Brother Taylor said he lost all power of motion, like a bird shot in flight. He couldn't move. And the momentum was carrying him out the window. And at that point, as he's falling out the window, he is shot from behind in the leg, and at the same moment, he is shot from outside by the Carthage Grays. The mob shot up at Brother Taylor. It struck, now some people argue with this, and these events, you can argue all you want, but you've got no choice but to go with the record. Struck the watch, stopping the hands, I believe it was 5.16 p.m. and 26 seconds. The force of the ball threw Brother Taylor back into the room, right in the middle of the floor, and the mob opened fire on him. He said, when I struck the floor, my animation was restored. As soon as I felt the power of motion, I crawled under the bed, which was in the corner of the room, not far from the window where I received my wound. While on my way under the bed, I was wounded in three other places. One ball entered a little below the left knee and never was extracted. Another entered the forepart of my left arm, a little above the wrist, and passing down by the joint, lodged in the fleshy part of my hand about midway, a little above the upper joint of my little finger, about right there in his left hand. Another, he said, and get this, struck me in the left hip and tore away the flesh, as large as my hand dashing the mangled fragments of flesh and blood against the wall. At that point, the record says that Joseph turned and walked calmly to the same window where John Taylor had just been shot. As he stepped to the window, he was shot in the back by the mob, and a bullet entered his right breast from without. Joseph fell out the window, exclaiming, Oh Lord, my God. According to Willard Richards, he fell two stories and landed on his head and shoulder on his left side. Willard says, as his feet went out the window, my head went in, the balls whistling all around. He fell on his left side, a dead man. In total, 14, maybe 15 shots hit the prisoners. Hiram was hit five times, John Taylor four, 
Willard Richards was grazed. His ear was just grazed with one. Joseph was shot three times, maybe four. And all of this, according to Willard Richards, was done inside of two minutes. Some scholars think it was longer, but two minutes is what Willard said. John Taylor recorded the following. Brother Richards was very much troubled and explained. Oh, Brother Taylor, is it possible that they had killed Brother Hiram and Joseph? It cannot surely be. And yet I saw them shoot them. Soon afterwards, Brother Dr. Richards came to me and informed me that the mob had precipitately fled and at the same time confirmed the worst fears that Joseph was assuredly dead. Listen. I felt a dull, lonely, sickening sensation at the news. It seemed as though there was a void or vacuum in the great field of human existence to me and a dark, gloomy chasm in the kingdom and that we were left alone. Oh, how lonely was that feeling. At that point, fearing that the mob would return, Brother Richard starts to go down and Brother Taylor cries out, take me with you. Brother Richards grabs him by the arm and starts dragging him into the cell where he would drag him in and cover him over with a filthy mattress inside the cell. But as Brother Taylor is drugged out of the room, he offers this in recollection. Soon afterwards, I was taken to the head of the stairs and laid there where I had a full view of our beloved and now murdered Brother Hiram. There he lay as I had left him. He had not moved a limb. He lay placid and calm, a monument of greatness even in death. But his noble spirit had left its tenement and was gone to dwell in regions more congenial to his exalted nature. Poor Hiram. He was a great and good man, and my soul was cemented to his. If ever there was an exemplary, honest, virtuous man, an embodiment of all that is noble in the human form, Hiram Smith was its representative. My dear brothers and sisters, I'll continue the story of talking about the martyrdom. I'll be talking about the aftermath of the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith. Suffice it to say for tonight, by way of testimony, this was meant to happen. It was meant to happen that Joseph's enemies could exercise their agency. As Brigham Young would later teach by revelation, it was needful that their lives be taken, that their testimony would be sealed and their witness made sure. As President Gordon B. Hinckley and others have taught, Joseph's testimony is now binding and sealed. He has proven to all the world, no one can argue, he has proven to all the world that he was willing to give his life for his testimony, willing to sacrifice all that he had, even his own blood, for the Book of Mormon and his witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the priesthood and the keys that he bore. No one can ever accuse Joseph of cowardice who knows these events. Not only that, Hiram was there with him, thus fulfilling the law of the witnesses, as the revelation says that the wicked might be condemned and Joseph and Hiram may be honored 
to the last day. Their innocent blood yet still calls out to the hearts of those whose hearts are open and soft to the spirit and bears witness that Joseph Smith was a prophet, a prophet of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my witness. That is my testimony. Years ago, forgive me for speaking personally, years ago I went on a church history tour with Donovan and Jackie Harrington out of Idaho in Teton stage lines. I've since been back on many occasions with Fun for Less tours, but I went there the first time with Donovan and Jackie, and we all stood in that jail, and I taught the events of the martyrdom, and I bore my testimony that Joseph and Hiram were prophets of the living God. The tears flowed freely. That ground became holy and sacred to me, to my three oldest children, and to those that were in that room. My dear brothers and sisters, you don't need to go to Carthage to know that Joseph was a prophet. But if you go, you will surely feel that this is a sacred place. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week. <music>